If you would, turn the Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We have finished chapter 1. We're about to get started on a new part, the letters to the churches. Hopefully you've got your journals with you and ready to listen and take some notes. Today is going to be a really helpful day for us in understanding God's Word and the whole book of Revelation. We're going to kind of settle in today because starting in chapter 2, there are seven straight letters to seven different churches. And so today and the next six uh, sermons from Revelation will be very similar. It'll be very consistent. We're going to see the same framework. They're all going to go together, but the messages will be different. But they are very similar in, in what we see here in chapters 2 and 3. The totality of chapters 2 and 3 are these seven letters that are written to the churches. Now, we've already gone over this. If you haven't been keeping up with Revelation, then, then that's all right. We have all that online for you. We're not too far ahead that you're, like, drowning in it. You can go back. There's only been three, three messages so far. We would love for you to go back and listen to those. And one of the things that we have pointed out is that this one single revelation, not revelations, this one single revelation to John is a letter, okay, is a letter that John wrote to the churches, but inside of this letter are seven little messages to each of seven different churches. And so that's what we're going to embark on this morning. And today's message is a good one, really, really good one. I remember it very clearly in 2005, Val and I had just finished up dating. We were engaged for some time and we got married and 2005, April 2nd. And I remember we were downstairs at church one night and we had walked out and right there in front of kind of a crowd of people, I went to the right side of the car and opened the door for her and, and let her in the car. And I heard somebody holler back from up at the door like, look at that, they love birds. Don't get used to it, Val. That won't last very long. That's a big discouragement to young couples, by the way. Things like flowers or candy or love notes or opening a door are things that we do when we are in, in love. And maybe it is true that those things fade away as time goes on. I don't know what your marriage is like or your relationship was like, and I... I don't want to stand up here today and act like I do that all the time for Val. Nothing's worse than a lying preacher. In this passage today, Jesus says that sort of a thing to the church. A lot of times churches get really worked up on preaching at the world. Blaming people, insulting people, criticizing people. These next seven weeks are clearly, without any question, not for the people outside the church, but for the people in the church. The church is not a building. I don't mean those of you all that are here today in attendance. I mean those of us who say Christ is our Lord, who believe in him. The messages from Jesus to his church, which he is the head of the body, the groom to his bride, the messages are strong, but they are loving. The book of Ephesians tells us to speak the truth in love, and nobody has ever better spoken truth in love than Jesus himself. Everything Jesus says is true and loving. He is the ultimate example of speaking truth and loving you through it. These messages will be so good for us. But he says to his church here, all that he knows that they do well, and yet that which they are doing wrong, and that is the most serious. It's going to be good for us. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, let's just go over a little bit of, um, of, of just structure here for just a second. 
In chapters 2 and 3, you can see these seven different letters. Just look with me real quick. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And chapter 3, verse 14, the last one, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. So everybody sees that, right? So what you have in each of these sections is this kind of structure that is very consistent. It's like Jesus was organized, if you want to say that. You have a command to write to the church's angel, all right? Now, I mentioned last week, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on this. That comes up in chapter 1, the angels to the churches. And the New Testament doesn't talk much at all about an angel of churches. And so perhaps this just means the leaders, the pastors, the elders. The word angel only means messenger. So very well could be that. I don't really know. I don't draw hard conclusions on confusing stuff. So it doesn't matter to me if you think pastor or angel, okay? Either one, the messenger, all right? But the, the command is there at all seven of those, tell, uh, tell the angel to write this. Okay, do angels even write? Maybe that helps you, I don't know. And then right after that, on, on all seven of these, Christ says something about himself. If you look at our chapter two, verse one, he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who, ho- who walks among the seven golden lampstands, all right? I know this is a little bit of kind of like a tedious little work right here just to explain the context, but just bear with me for a second. So what we have in chapter one is this uh, dynamic, awesome vision of Jesus. And what he does each time is he kind of explains some of that. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, right? But if you look over to chapter 2, verse 8, he says, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. And if you were here last week, you remember that he says that too in chapter 1. And so every time he says, he says that message to the angel, then he just says something about himself, and then he goes into saying, here's what I know about your church. And that right there is... Going to be a big mess, part of the message today, but that should get you a little bit. Like when you hear that Christ knows everything about the church, that should wake you up. That should cause you to listen. He knows everything. And then from there, he goes into the things that are good about the church and the things that are bad about the church, the things that are wrong, ways we need to be encouraged to keep going, and ways we need to be rebuked, and that needs to stop. And he does that with almost every one of them. All right? Well, then he goes into uh, closing it out, each letter, And he says, you need to listen to what the Spirit is leading you to do. Believe, repent, obey, stop doing that, right? And then he gives a promise that for all that believe, who all that listen, who all who hear his message, they will receive salvation. Every one of them follows this structure, okay? And so now that you've heard that, you'll you'll pick up on that each week, and it's really good for us, all right? Now, what we also mentioned... In chapter 1, it tells us the seven churches and the seven lampstands and the seven stars and you know, all that. And I, and I kept, keep reminding you that that seven is just a representative number of wholeness, completeness, fullness. And so while these are real cities with real churches back then, it certainly applies to the whole church. It applies to churches everywhere, and it is instructive for us. With all of that said... Read with me at chapter 2, beginning of verse 1 through verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars, remember those are the messengers, in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands, remember those are the churches. I said last week, if that sounds confusing to you, read a little bit later, and he explains it. In chapter 1 he says, this is what this means. The stars are the messengers, the angels and the lampstands are the churches. All right, we got that. Verse two, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not 
and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Short letter, isn't it? Short message, clear, to the point, strong, loving, from Jesus to that church in Ephesus. So the way we will remember each of these small seven letters is simply by the city or the church in the city that they are addressed to. So today's is to the church in Ephesus. We have two points this morning what Jesus knows about them, and what Jesus has against them. Number one would be Jesus saying, I know your works. And number two would be Jesus saying, but I have this against you. One of the things of our day is that there are cameras everywhere, right? And if anything happens, people have learned to pull out their phones and video right away. So many things are being caught on camera these days. And so we can quite often say, I know what you did. We have it on video. And from the one who is able to see all things, God himself, when he says in verse 2, if you will look at verse 2, I know your works. We are to hear that as something big and grand and something that only the omnipresent, almighty God can do. He sees everything. The Bible says that nothing is hidden from his sight, and that is both good and bad. A lot of times the Bible tells us that to remind us that, hey, if you're living wrong, if you're sinning, he sees it. But here, it's a good thing. He says, hey, I see you, right? That's a new phrase that people say all the time when you do something good. I see you. And Jesus says, I know your works. And then he goes through a list of things, y'all. The church in Ephesus had a lot of strengths. The church in Ephesus had a lot of strengths. He says, I know your works, man. I see what y'all are doing. Your toil, your patient endurance. Remember, that's a big deal because in chapter 1, verse 9, John said he's partners with them in the patient endurance. If there's anything that Christianity needs in hard lives is the the ability to be patient and endure. Stick with it. Don't give up. Press on. Don't get distracted He says, I see that the church in Ephesus is that way, man. Y'all are patient and you endure. The patient endurance. I see it. And then he says how you cannot bear with those who are evil. They hate evil there. Their hypocrisy is not because they're doing bad things. Listen, there are lots of Christian people in the world that do bad things, and that will be addressed in a later letter, but it's not this one today. The church of Ephesus is not known for hypocrisy where they do a lot of bad things. They hate people that do bad things. They hate evil. They cannot stand with those. They will call you out in a heartbeat. There is accountability there. The church of Ephesus has this. Even so, that they recognize false teaching, false apostles. He says, I You have tested those who call themselves apostles. There were only 12 apostles. There haven't been any others after the apostle Paul. They could recognize who was an apostle and who wasn't. The New Testament gives us criteria for that, and they were good at that. They knew who to listen to and who not to listen to. When it comes to teaching truth, this is really important. You can't listen to any preacher. You listen to somebody who teaches you this book. The message is more important than the messenger. Make sure they stick to the message. And they did this. 
They tested them. They could identify who was genuine and who wasn't, and they found them to be false. He says again, I know, verse 3, that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Ephesus was known for being a place with a lot of persecution. It was in Rome. It was rough there. There were a lot of ungodly leaders that hated Christianity. It was hard to be a Christian in Ephesus during this time. It was hard, and they suffered through it, enduring patiently, bearing up for the name of Jesus, that which it would cost them, and at the end of verse three, they have not grown weary. He sees all of this. That's an encouragement, isn't it? That's an encouragement. Christ identifies with his people in their sufferings, Christ's people identify with Christ in their sufferings. The New Testament teaches this. They had been pressing on. It is a mark of Christianity for us to do what we do for God, not for the reward here. We don't do it for the applause of man. For the applause of man. We don't do it for the pat on the back. We don't do it to get results. We don't. We don't do it to get results. We do it so that God is pleased and honored and worshiped. And Christians know this. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says four times, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That good day is coming for every true child of God when they will enter into heaven in peace forever with their father and all of the reward and honor that is deserved to them through the salvation and grace alone of God will be given to them and we live for him now. The Bible says that whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. The Bible says that whatever you do, when you work, work heartily for the Lord and not for man. We don't need their approval. Now, is it nice when you get a compliment or encouragement or a bonus or a raise or, or a well done or a, you know, whatever, a good game? Yeah, it's nice. But we don't have to have it. We are satisfied in Christ, anchored in him. And when the Bible tells us that he is pleased with certain things, that's enough for us. That's enough for us. Here, we get this large statement, I know your work. Now notice that the word works is used there, and this is really important, because the Bible is so heavy on teaching us that we're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by your works. You can't do enough goodness to like tip the scale into God going, well, I'm, I'm impressed. You're so good that I'm just going to welcome you into heaven. That doesn't happen. The Bible says we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we need his mercy and forgiveness in our lives. Regardless, the Bible even says that to be guilty in one place, to break one sin, is to make you guilty of all of it and get you off of the holy standard level that God is. And we get that. He's God. He's never messed up. We're human. We've all messed up. And so works cannot and will not save us. But with that being said... Works is a huge conversation in our lives. It is needed. It is a part of Christianity. And the Bible teaches us that works come from uh, the root or the heart, or works come from the heart, and so the fruit comes from the root. hope you've heard that before. The fruit in our lives comes from the root in our hearts. So a lot of times, not always, the fruit reveals the root. You might have thought you bought an apple tree, but if it's only producing oranges, it's not an apple tree. There ain't no way that your apple tree is producing oranges. And you may have thought that you were a Christian because at one point you said you wanted to be. And that church may have thought that they were a church because at one point they thought they were. But if at their core they are not what God says his church is, maybe not. And that's what this message is to the church in Ephesus. He sees all their works. Hey, you need to be encouraged here today that God sees how you're living 
God sees what you're trying to do. God sees your attempt to love your neighbor or be a blessing at work or to be light in the darkness. God sees it. God sees when you've sacrificed. We may not have seen it, but God sees it. God sees when you've held your breath or bit your tongue or when you've done good or when you've sacrificed or when you've given there. God sees when you've helped somebody in this direction or helped somebody in that direction. God sees it all. He says to us and to the church of Ephesus, I know your works. I want you to be encouraged today that he sees it all and I want you to be challenged to know that he sees it all. But then he goes to the second point, which is clearly the main point. Number one, Jesus says, I know your works. Number two, Jesus says, but I have this against you. Look at verse four. But I have this against you. Let's stop there for just a second. That's not good. If Jesus is able to talk to the church or write a letter or reveal a vision to his man John and says, give it to the church. And in that he says, I have something against you. That's not good. We gotta know that. Oh, that he does not have something against us. And if he does, that we are listening this morning. And here's what it is. Perhaps the strongest accusation there can be to a church. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Some other translations say you've abandoned your first love or forsaken your first love. This church is no longer loving, he writes to Ephesus. And that stings. We can all picture a relationship that is filled with all sorts of commitment and works, stick to itiveness, paying the bills, a provider, a helper, doing a lot of things, giving rides to the kids, preparing meals. But there's just no longer any love in that relationship. And we all know that's bad. And while it's bad in a relationship, it is ultra bad for the church. Commentator Wilcox says, when you hear this, let the loveless church beware. The Bible is heavy on love. It is. You know the statements that say, for God so loved the world. And you know the statements that say, when Jesus teaches, that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. People are to be loving, and God's church is to be loving And Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus, they're not. Now, love is described as the one characteristic that makes all other characteristics worthless. The one quality without which it all others lose their value. And that's why this accusation is so stinging. Now, I want to clarify here at verse 4 that it's really hard to tell what are they no longer loving. What was the love they had at first? What was their first love? And there is a lot of debate on this. Is it that their first love was Jesus, their first, their primary, their biggest, their most important? They no longer love him. Is it that? Or is it that love is the most important thing and they're no longer loving, loving in general. And I I don't really know. Same thing I was saying earlier about the messages. I'm not really sure. A lot of back and forth on this. um, But commentator Morris says it this way. It's not clear 
whether this is love for Christ or love for one another or love for mankind at large. And it may well be just the general attitude is meant, which included all three, which means, yes, it means love for Christ, and yes, it means loving others. But clearly, they have abandoned love, love for Jesus or love for people. Now, this is scary because he just said all of those things that they're still doing. I want to ask you here today a rhetorical question that says, is it possible for a church, Christian people, church-going people, is it possible for them to work, work hard, and to patiently endure? Is it possible possible for them to no longer bear with those who do evil and separate the difference between those that do evil and those that do not? Is it possible for a church to recognize that's good teaching and that's from the apostles and that's bad teaching and that is not apostles' teaching? Those are false apostles, apostles. We do not listen to them. Is it possible for them to endure patiently and bear up suffering for the name of Christ and not grow weary? Is it possible? for a church to embrace all of those strengths and positive attributes and characteristics and yet no longer love? Is that possible? Yes, that's the deal with Ephesus. That's the deal with Ephesus, and that ought to shake us. That ought to scare us. Now, I want you to turn with me, and we're going to do this a lot throughout the book of Revelation. This isn't the first time. But I want you to turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 24. And I want you to hear what Jesus says will become of the world. Matthew 24. We're going to start in verse 3. I want you to see this, okay? Now, don't get distracted. As he sat, verse 3, 24 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There's their question, right? When's the end times? When will the end be? That's their question, verse 4. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now pay attention to these next three verses. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now look at verse 12. Because the lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Turn back with me to Revelation 2. It is a big warning, a red flag for Jesus when the believer has lost his love. Now the context of that in Matthew 24 is heavy, isn't it? Scary. End times, wars, earthquakes, persecution, people dying for the cause, many falling away, many that used to say they were Christian no longer are, people not caring for one another, supporting one another, and their love will grow cold. Jesus says that. Jesus says that. Often people read Matthew 24 and they think, when is that day coming? But according to Revelation 2, that's now. That's then. The Ephesus church, the Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, has 
grown cold with their love. They no longer love. This is bad. Churches must love well. They must love God most, foremost. It is the greatest commandment of all in the Bible that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The New Testament teaches throughout that you must love Christ Jesus. If you do not love Christ Jesus, you will not be saved. It's not about good works. It's about love. Love for Christ. Love for your Savior. Love for the one who is the only one who can save you from your sins and forgive you of your sins. And this church has abandoned that love, that initial first love that they had. And it's scary. And Jesus is the one telling them this. So what does he say to them? Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. This is a good word, remember. Because they can look back and remember when they were loving. They can look back and remember when they used to love Jesus. There was a time when they were worried about their sins. There was a time when they were convicted of things. There was a time when they said, we don't do that. That's not honoring to God. There's no place for that in our lives. We don't treat people like that. That's not honoring to God, and there's no place for that in our lives. We must stay focused on Christ. He's the only one that loves us and died for us. He's the way to heaven. He's the only one that will stick with us. He's the forgiver of our sins. We must continue to love Christ, and we remember when we talk that way. We can all recall back when we first came to know Jesus, when we got baptized, when we stood right there or at another one just like it, and we said in front of a whole crowd of people, I believe in Christ. He's my Savior, and I know that I've sinned against him, and I need his forgiveness. We remember that. Jesus says to his church, remember from where you've fallen Remember how it used to be when you read your Bible with pen in hand and you got excited about the sweetness of the truth, sweeter than honey, sweeter than the honey on a honeycomb. Remember when you used to sit in your room and without even thinking about church, the good, true, biblical worship songs came to your mind and you just sang in your heart songs that were true about mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. Think about that. Jesus says, remember where you have fallen from. And then he gives us the word that's often taboo in 2022, but it's a God word. It's a Jesus word. It's a true word. It's a Bible word. And he says, here's what you do to fix it. You repent. Repent. He uses it at the beginning of verse 5, and he uses it at the end of verse 5. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. That devotion that you had to Christ then, that hatred for sin that you had then, repent of that it's okay in your life now, repent of the lovelessness in your life now, and go back to what you were. Listen, y'all, this is the message of Christianity. We can always turn back. If you're here today thinking, man, it sounds like I'm like the church of Ephesus. I am not the believer today that I was then. He says to you, repent and get right. He says to you, turn back to what you used to be. And the beautiful thing about the one speaking this is that it was his life, his blood, his sacrifice on the cross that says, come to me, every one of you. You can always turn back. There is mercy for you here at the cross. There is forgiveness for you here at the cross. This is Jesus telling them to repent. Now, it's interesting here that he uses the word works. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And this goes back to that whole fruit root conversation. And so it is repenting back to works motivated by love. Works motivated by our love for Christ. Works motivated by our love for Christ producing a love for people. But what if they don't? What if the church loses its love, and just remains that way. Well, look at this. Verse five, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is strong. 
A lamp is a lamp, and we all know what it is. It's a light. And a light is what the church is in the world. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. But we're only the light in the world because of John chapter 8. Jesus is the light of the world. And to the degree that Jesus is in us, we are a light in the world. And the Bible describes that Jesus is a light in the darkness, and therefore his church can be a light in the darkness. And you don't take a light and put it under a basket so that nobody can see it, and you don't allow salt to lose its saltiness in the world. No, the church is to be in the world making a difference, a good, positive difference, pointing people to hope and the truth true love of God and the forgiveness of sins. This is what churches do. But Jesus says, if they will not, he will remove the lampstand. He will turn the light out. Take the light out. Remove the light, and that church will no longer be a church. One commentator writes, although Christ has promised to build his church worldwide, He guarantees permanence to no individual congregation. A loveless church is no longer truly a church. And Christ has the right to extinguish such a congregation. This is the warning here. Let the loveless church beware. Now, in summary... This is the whole letter to the church of Ephesus. You got a lot of things that you're doing well. I see it. I know your works. But none of it is now motivated by love. Your heart's not in the right place. And so therefore, it's all for naught. It's bad. It's not good. And so, if you do not repent, remember, repent, and return to what you first did. If you don't, I will extinguish that light, remove that lampstand, Jesus himself says. Now, from there, he goes back into verse 6, kind of praising them or bragging on them again. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they are, listen, united. And this is a word for our day. They are united, God and his church, on that which they hate. Now that is a message for 2022. You and God hate the same things. But you and God don't love the same things. Lord, have mercy on us. The church of Ephesus united with God, hated the message and work of the Nicolaitans. They were united on that, but not in love. And love, the lack of love, was enough to show they are not truly representatives of God. Shame on us, and Lord have mercy on us, when we are strong in what we hate, but absent in what we love. Christ won't stand for it. And if love for Christ is the ultimate witness, the Bible says they loved not their lives even to death because they loved Jesus so much. Paul ends the letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 22 by saying, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. If the church will not love God most, they cannot be a church. Pass out all the food we want to, support all the local schools that we want to, help the needy and the poor with provision, pay LG&E bills, be there for anybody who has a need without a heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says that ain't it. That ain't it. It's scary. Scary that they are good at hating 
but not good at loving. May that not be us. Wilcock writes, such a failure is only too possible. And it has to be confessed by all Christians who have cast themselves into the role of Mr. Valiant for Truth and forgotten that they are also expected to be Mr. Great Heart. Christianity is people who love the truth because they love God. Christianity is people who love people because they love God. And Christianity is people, 1 John 4, 19, who love God only, only, only because he first loved us and gave his son to die for us. Several years ago, we didn't have a church mission statement. We had a church covenant. It was that old Baptist one that nobody ever read. We didn't read it either. So we started trying to just reorganize some things here. We got us a new church covenant, and now we read every month at our monthly members' meetings. It's been awesome. And we worked on a mission statement. We didn't want to be cool because the world doesn't need cool churches. We wanted to be honest. We intentionally said we don't need any big words in here. We worked hard together as a church on Wednesday nights for several weeks. We came up with this. It's on the front of your bulletin. We exist to proclaim Jesus while loving and serving both God and people. And that's our mission statement. And I really, really like it. Because no matter what we're doing, we must remember to be loving God in it. And no matter what we're doing, we must remember to be loving people in it. And yes, it is our highest of goals to be a voice in the wilderness, a proclamation, heralds of that great salvation message that Jesus Christ died for your sins and will forgive you of your sins. But we can even be about that, absent of love, and then be dangerous. If you're here today and you have lost your first love, Christianity's become a job to you, then I want to ask you to return, just as Christ said, back to it. All of us have been somewhere before and had a bad experience and replied with something like, I ain't ever going back there, I'll tell you that. Never going back there, that was horrible. And sometimes church is like that. I want to remind you here today that church is never exactly equal to God. And every time we've been put out or hurt by church, we cannot let it push us away from Christ. But in a world where we have so many options, right? If one restaurant treats you badly, it's not a problem to say I'm never going back there because you have hundreds of other options. If one school treats you badly, it's not a problem to say I'm never going back there because you have so many other options. You may think you've got other options with churches, and yes, you do, but you do not have another option who will save your soul. There's only one way, door, gate, entrance to eternal life, to be in peace with God forever, and that is Christ. You either love him or you don't love him, and that is the most important thing in the world, and if anything or anybody or any church or me or somebody else sitting here today has pushed you away from loving him, would you, by the grace of God, turn back and say, God, I want to love you. Bring me back to it. And teach me, God, that I got nowhere else to go. Where else could we go, Jesus? You have the answer to eternal life. It's not found anywhere else but Christ. And so a church 
that's doing all of those things well, but does not love, is not really a church. And that should wake us up. In closing, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You may not be able to find it, but I want you to try to because I want you to see this. Paul is saying the same thing in a little bit of a different way. First Corinthians 13, along with Ephesians 5, is the most common passage read at weddings. And that's okay. I think we read it at ours. But it's not about weddings or marriages. It's not about romantic love. It's about love, regardless of where you place it. It's about real love. And today, I want you to only see the first three verses. If you don't know these verses, underline them. 13.1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and look at this, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, But have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3. And if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Christianity is a lot of things, isn't it? We go, we come, we send, we pray, we read, we help. We mess up, we offend, and we have a complicated life. But at the very center of it is an amazing grace, a love from God that says to us, his love is better than life, Psalm 63. Says to us, greater love has nobody than this, that he would lay down his life for us. It says to us in Romans 8 that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you trust in Christ, you are in his love forever. May you not let your heart grow cold. May you not let your soul stop loving both him and others. And so we have these concluding words from Revelation 2. Remember where you've fallen from. Repent and return back to those works that you did at first. Three words, all with R, to conclude our service today. Remember, repent, return to loving that which we should love, to not living Christian lives without love. Now, we're not sure, but church history teaches us that John was one of the first bishops in the church of Ephesus. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. That would have been way early on. That would have been kind of after Christ died. And this is many, many years later. He's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Picture the Apostle John who pastored that church in Ephesus, discipled them, taught them good doctrine, taught them good doctrine. He wrote John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He was a fantastic pastor. But then left. He's no longer the pastor. And now he's on the Isle of Patmos writing this letter back to them. Hearing. They used to be loving, and now they're not. The pain there. Also, these Nicolaitans in verse 5, who are they? Nobody really knows. 
The only other time they're mentioned is later in chapter 2 to Pergamum. And so I've had a lot of you all asking, hey, I want to study more. I want, I want to go deeper with this. I want to walk through deep dive of Revelation while you are. Check this out. In Acts chapter 6, when the daily distribution of the food to the widows was being hindered, and they said, we need to choose seven to be the deacons to serve the food. You remember that? One of the seven is Nicholas, a leader in the Jerusalem church, a deacon. Could this be that he had fallen astray? And because he was a leader deacon in the Jerusalem church, many followed him? Maybe so, I don't know, but y'all can go study it. This is good study. Church, God's given us 413 Fairdale Road. People know who we are. They see us. They use our playground like crazy. Wednesday, there'll be 200 cars in the parking lot. Imagine, imagine if we got this visibility, this opportunity to do anything other than love God with it. Oh, Lord, protect us from that. May we not be the Ephesian church. One final thing. There is no longer an Ephesian church. There is no longer an Ephesian church. It went out. He removed the lampstand. It no longer exists. I don't know why every church closes, but Revelation 2 tells us why some do. Because they don't love. If you've been loved by God, forgiven of your sins, by all means, love him back. And if you don't, start today. Remember, repent, return. Father in heaven, thank you for the first letter to the church, church in Ephesus. Father, it's, 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 it's grabbed our attention because we get to do so many things. You've opened up doors, God. You've opened up doors for our church to serve. And you see those works, and you even speak well of them. But there must be a repentance into loving. Father, thank you for Christ and his great love for us. We cannot think at all about love, especially our love, without being aware of how much you love us. Thank you for loving us. God, we pray today that you would lead us to repent and you would draw us to return to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.